Welcome to an episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And we are in the middle of November, and we're doing a lot of different things in the show. With our Patreon now, we're doing some more noir discussions. Uh, next week, I believe, we're going to have one coming out about Richard Gere and neo-noir, specifically Richard Gere in like kind of the 80s, early 90s. I was surprised at how much like neo-noir Richard Gere had done. Like yeah. with the American, American Gigolo um the not reckless to, remake not to speak badly of richard Gere's career but i feel like he's someone who, who worked with some really really interesting filmmakers in the 80s and then kind of fell into a kind of rom-com uh yeah. comfort run yeah. in the 90s it's like you look at that 80s period it's like paul schrader it's uh francis terrence Ford coppola terrence malick like even jim mcbride's kind of an interesting guy who did the breathless remake like he was in a lot of and again he's he's kind of he's charismatic in the in the stuff in the 90s too it's just like yeah and i mean you know he he even you know he was still working he worked with altman in the 90s but yeah. it was like one of his lesser movies um yeah yeah but, but it's like i'm not there that was the, i guess the more recent one that he's mm-hmm. like fantastic in as the bob dylan one i never saw uh arbitrage that's one that i've mean to watch that's like from 2012 that he was he's mm-hmm. like a he's a hedge fund guy yeah it was mm-hmm. one that like it got a lot of, got a little bit of buzz and it came with the video store that I was working at in Alabama and it was one that I never like I always like meant to watch but never did. But he got a Golden Globe nomination, I think, for it. Yeah. And then uh, I mean we were both fans of Unfaithful for Oh yeah, Adrian Unfaithful. Lyon. Yeah. And he, he's great it's small role, but he's great in this movie called Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is very hard to find. That Diane Keaton movie from the seventies hmm. where she's like teacher by day, uh kind of a nightclub like sleeping around with guys at night like very different it's mm-hmm. based on this true story of this teacher who did all this and it the problem the interesting thing about this movie is like it's never been released on dvd or blu-ray because of just like rights issues mm-hmm. but like she was nominated i think she was nominated for a golden globe there was like best cinematography nomination best supporting actress nomination it was a box office hit it's like uh, Richard Gere's in it, Diane Keaton, Tom Berenger in a small part. Like it's Tuesday Weld, but like rights issues have locked this thing up to where it's never been released on anything, uh, like, like an actual legitimate release, I will say. Mm-hmm. There have been DVDs out there, but not legitimate. But yeah, like Richard Gere just was in a lot of interesting stuff. And I think Primal Fear, we didn't even mention that. I, I love Primal Fear. And then, yeah. and then you have Pretty Woman. Like it's like all that stuff is great. Officer and Gentleman so much but i want to talk about richard gear some on our, on our patreon so we're doing that next week david is coming on to talk about that but on the main show here thomas we're talking mm-hmm. about something that's a subgenre of noir yes. and that is neon noir so what have we discussed so far when talking about this genre well last week we talked about blade runner and we talked about how the idea of neon noir is taking this this noir style which was based in a german expression style which was ultimately based in black and white cinematography and the contrast between black and white mm-hmm. and updating it not just to color photography but to the kind of neon lights specifically of the 1980s yeah with blade runner we get kind of a futuristic take on it is in this idea of like what would a detective movie look like when everything is lit with neons and and so you know ultimately it is it is stylistically not a huge deviation from from noir in itself it's 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 just taking this idea of something that's based in black and white and kind of ushering it into 
color with not just color film with not just color photography but also with colored lighting Mm -hmm. from a thematic point of view a lot of it is taking kind of more either current or futuristic themes and then mixing them back into our kind of classic noir detective storytelling yeah and um i think i think we'll see that today as well just this i this kind of melding of the 80s and 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 looking forward into the future after the 80s and melding that with this like 40s 50s style that we were familiar with noir coming Mm -hmm. from and there there is this like other worldliness to this idea of neon noir even in something like thief Mm -hmm. because like i think of thief and say otherworldly it's like i i like using certain techniques to make it just not like a straight film i think of like the with the final shootout and thief of like the slow motion kind of kills and the Mm -hmm. and the tangerine dream score like something's haunting about it and then and and go with manhunter is the same thing where it's like there's something just you're seeing them ushering in a new era of filmmaking in some way yeah and like michael mann's kind of the one that kind of says like this is what we're doing yeah and it feels like everyone kind of follows suit for a bit after that yeah, man and man and De Palma. It's it's and yeah. and you know they they are also people. We talked a lot when we did when we covered noir about how it was always about transgression. It was always about mm-hmm. the things that go on within the shadows, and that's kind of the idea of these like dark dark shadows. Is like at at that point in time with the Hayes Code, it's like we can't show you what's going on in this in the shadows, but we can show you mm-hmm. the shadows, which is something that film hadn't really done up to that point. And and so when you've got Michael Mann and De Palma, who are both very transgressive filmmakers in the 1980s, they're coming in and like, we're going to show you. We're going to show yeah. you the sex. We're going to show you the violence. We're going to show you the cocaine. Um, it's it's all lit. It's all lit in neon now. And you can see it. Um, so you still have kind of those transgressive themes. It's just, you know, obviously the Hays Code, the Hays Code is long gone at this point. And, and we can see the things that are happening in the dark alleys now yeah and and that will come into play a lot in today's movie in terms of how neon is used to lighting these type things especially kind of these urban settings a lot again another thing with neon noir is usually urban settings which most noir films are the city kind of landscape mm-hmm. and that's here in this and then you'll also see like i said that the violence from the more Hayes code there's always kind of a climactic ending of some kind and some sort of violence what we'll talk about today with this movie, we're talking about a, a, I don't know if it's a little-known movie, underrated movie. We'll just we'll decide, I guess. A movie called Streets of Fire, and Streets of Fire is very interesting of how it deals with violence, and we'll talk about that as we go because it's not Hayes Code violence, but it's not Michael Mann violence of how everything's mm-hmm. shown. Very interesting example of something that goes against what might be happening at this point in time. So. We're talking about Streets of Fire. And so what is Streets of Fire? Great question that I'm asking myself. So Streets of Fire was directed by Walter Hill, who directed such films as 48 Hours, The Warriors, which will, this feels like a a cousin or something Mm -hmm. of The Warriors, but also The Driver, another kind of neo-noir classic, um, Southern Comfort. He was one of the co-writers on Alien and a lot of different things. And it, he co-wrote it with his friend, Larry Gross. It's produced by Lawrence Gordon, Jill Silver. And the movie is about, it's, it's of a different time. It's a rock and roll fable, as it is called, 
of how it mixes retro 50s and current 1980s stuff. And basically it's about this former military, this, this veteran, Tom Cody, who comes home to his town of Richmond, this kind of city that you it's just kind of you can't really place it's kind of chicago kind of not and he comes back home after he gets word from his sister that his old girlfriend ellen aim has been kidnapped she's this really big lead singer who's come back to town for this like uh uh homecoming concert and she gets kidnapped by these motorcycle this motorcycle gang uh ran by a man named raven raven <laughs> shattuck played by Willem Dafoe and it's just a kind of an eccentric cast of characters in this neon drenched world of Tom Cody trying to go rescue his ex-girlfriend that left him to become a singer uh and he's trying to get her back to to bring her back to our manager Billy Fish played by Rick Moranis so you have Michael uh Paré playing Tom Cody Diane Lane playing Ellen Aim Rick Moranis playing Billy Fish Amy Madigan playing McCoy who is Tom Cody's kind of sidekick Willem Dafoe playing Raven and then Deborah Van Valkenberg playing Reva Cody, who's Tom's sister with some appearances by Bill Paxton mm-hmm. in, in the movie as a bartender, Clyde uh, leaving from Flashdance and Clue fame. We've talked about leaving three times. This, he, this, you know, <laughs> and he, someone who had a, you know, famously not super successful film career. So I feel like we might have covered like All most the of his ones. movies. Yeah. Uh, but Michael T. Williamson also, who mm-hmm. plays one of the the the, the singers and the and the uh, uh, Sorrells, also Robert Townsend, future director Robert Townsend, and then E.G. Daly, um, who was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure and kind of moved like really kind of prime '80s actress and singer, and also two more names: Richard Lawson, who plays a cop who was in Poltergeist. He's one of the people in Poltergeist that kind of comes and investigates the house, and then Richard. Rozovich, who's an officer in the movie, who's in who's in Top Gun and Roxanne, and I think even the Terminator very briefly. So yeah, a lot of big names in the supporting roles. That's somewhat shocking to see. Um, so I have seen this movie several times. It's one that I kind of found at the video store when I when I was a customer, and then also worked there at at Cinefal Video in Los Angeles. And it's one that like Walter Hill's a director everyone kind of loves of those early. 80s late 70s kind of classics and streets of fire is kind of the one like oh but did you see what he did like after all that stuff and it was always one like i think even at the record store uh the uh, touch vinyl the owner had a seb had a uh a streets of fire album cover like in the bathroom or whatever so like, streets of fire was always kind of around the block but i know you had never seen this movie before thomas i had never seen it before yeah so briefly what were your I guess thoughts of this movie after watching it for the first time. Um, it feels like a midnight movie. It feels yeah. like something we would, we would go see, um, you know, at those, at those midnight screenings we used to go to a good bit. Um, it's a great cast. <laughs> it's a lot of great music. It's fun. I don't know if it's good. Okay. okay. I'm glad to have seen it. Yeah, I love we'll, how you're just you're tiptoeing around all this stuff. It's great. We'll explore it more in the episode, and maybe I'll have a stronger feel. I'm still pretty fresh. I watched it last night. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Well, here's I, the, here, 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 it's, it's here's, distinctive. It, it's, it's distinctive. It's very unique. Yes. It's very unique. My, I think Patrick Willem said Beth best on Larabox. He was like, for a brief moment in the opening and in the closing, 
you think this is the greatest movie ever made yeah in the first in the first five minutes i was like why have i not seen this movie before exactly. and then and then i got maybe like 15 minutes into it and i was like oh okay maybe because i i told you i said it's gonna be really great and then something's gonna happen and you're gonna be like oh this is why this is why it hasn't held up as well for people mm-hmm. and yeah and and i and i even feel it too when i watch it where i go oh man this had such promise early on and just something kind of happens and it feel and then after that kind of happens you feel like we're playing catch up the rest of the movie and then that ending happens you're like oh this is the greatest movie i've ever made again <laughs> like it's just it's insane um but let's let's dive into this movie because it's it's a movie where again it's not as well known for people uh, i assume it's probably available to rent or or buy if you want to online somewhere but uh, there is a lot of story around how this movie got made and it's a period we kind of have to realize just what the 80s were like because you're i feel like when when we're talking about this as we keep going it's almost like adjacent to a lot of big things this movie a lot Mm. of big people uh a lot of big successes but somehow it just it doesn't find its way in the moment and that's why i think it's also kind of worth talking about so the history of streets of fire starts with a little movie named 48 hours and mm-hmm. the rise of Eddie Murphy. And so as Paramount executives were watching the dailies for this buddy cop film starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, they are becoming excited by the possible potential the film had at the box office, but also Murphy as a star. And they quickly signed Murphy to this multi-year deal, uh, becoming one of the last, I think movie stars to have an exclusive deal with the studio. If I'm not mistaken, it's like, Outside of Tom Cruise now, who works a lot with Paramount, Murphy was kind of the last one that, like, I'm signing a big deal just with mm-hmm. this studio. Um, and they were also interested in working with film, the film director, Walter Hill. And Walter Hill had done well for the studio at the end of the 70s with the Warriors. And it seemed they had another hit with him. And they're like, we got to work with you again. So they told his producers, Lawrence Gordon and Jill Silver, the infamous Jill Silver, uh, mm-hmm. who is who is working for Lawrence Gordon at this time to start putting together another project for them to do with Hill and his co-writer, Larry Gross for Paramount. And the 48 hour script had been hopping around town for like years because, because no one would do with it. And it was like, I think there was a strike that had happened maybe. And around that time, Gordon like dusted off the script was like, Hey, we can do this. And they got Hill and gross to kind of touch up the script and rewrite it for a movie um, for a new movie in the early eighties. And Gross was also present while they were kind of working on this on set. So he kind of helped with all the script problems. So during that time of 48 hours, when they're kind of finishing up and doing reshoots, they start thinking about another idea for a follow-up project. And they, and Hill was like, I want to do something completely different than 48 hours. I've done the 48 hours. I've done that type stuff. I want to do something different. Um, They agreed that instead of pitching it to Paramount, they would write it on spec in hopes of selling it for a higher price to Paramount or another studio that might want it. Mm-hmm. That was just kind of the idea. Hill told Gross that he always was interested in writing about a hero of a comic book, but that he didn't like any of the comic books that were out there. So he wanted to create his own. So he started writing pages for the script. And one day while doing the reshoots on 40 hours, Hill handed Gross an early version of a script called the Adventures of Tom Cody, book <laughs> book one. That will that will mm. come into play. That'll be a thing later. I'll bring it up, and that would be the basis of their next project. So 
Gross said they looked at what was happening in the industry at that moment, and they tried to kind of replicate two things they were seeing. One, because of Steven Spielberg and John Hughes, they realized that a lot of the major movies at the time focused on characters under the age of 30. So they wanted to create a world that was that had very few adult characters, basically. Mm-hmm. And when you watch this movie, outside of the cops, not a lot of adult figures in this film. Um, all just kind of young people in their mid to late 20s or younger. Mm-hmm. They also, they said this, I don't know how true this is, they also said that they wanted to recreate Flashdance in some way because of the rise of music videos, and they wanted to kind of put that in the script. Flashdance kind of came out at the time they began shooting, so I don't know how true that mm-hmm. is, yeah. but there, there's something in the air, I guess you could say. And then once Flashdance happens, they might have heard about it or something, and they're like, oh, we want something like that. Right. And then Hill also said he was inspired by the works of Sergio Leone and kind of Westerns. Okay. Yeah. Is the thing. But he talked about how Leone has like these kind of, again, otherworldly landscapes in his movies that kind of feel like they could only be from one of his movies and no one else's. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to create that with, with a movie now called Streets of Fire. Uh, they said they didn't name it after the famous Bruce Springsteen song, Streets of Fire, but they slapped on a few of the songs lyrics in the first page of the script in hopes of like helping sell it of like, <laughs> Oh, it's, it's the Springsteen song. Mm-hmm. And people and, would read it and be like, Oh, so Springsteen's yeah, attached. And they yeah, like, yeah, 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 that again, that will come into play later on this movie. <laughs> um, now here's where stories diverge in some way. So, Lawrence Gordon had always planned on selling the script to Paramount mm. because he had an overall deal there and because of the 48 hour success. One story is that after the script was complete, Hill told Gordon that he did not want to do the movie at Paramount because of how they treated him while making the Warriors and 48 hours. That's Hill's side of the story. He wanted to mm-hmm. take it elsewhere. Another story from Larry Gross, who's the co-writer, is that Michael Eisner head of Paramount at the time and future Disney CEO yeah. rejected the idea because he, he felt it was too similar to Indiana Jones. He thought the concept was too similar, not the mo- not the movie, but just like the concept of, of a lone kind of hero coming in and saving the day, I guess. Um, and apparently there was a fight between all of them and they decided to part ways Either way, Paramount would not make the movie, which was the initial plan to begin with, and Gordon would then take the film to Universal Pictures instead. Now, after Paramount passed on this movie, they submitted the script to Universal on a Friday in January 1983. By that Monday, the project was greenlit and they were in pre-production by Universal. So literally a weekend. Um, And they were starting to work on the Universal's lot. And that's when casting would begin. Hill would say it was the fastest any of his movies were ever greenlit before or since. Wow. I mean, it's literally a weekend. Mm-hmm. They read the script and they're like, we want to do it. Here's your money. Uh, so now they're casting it. And the biggest character they had to search for was the film's lead role of Tom Cody. And Hill said it was a tricky part to cast because they needed someone who could play an action star with maturity but who was also a young actor. He wasn't someone who was in his 30s or 40s. He wasn't mm-hmm. Harrison Ford. He wanted to kind of a young, young person. The story I've kept hearing over the years with kind of the several articles and stuff I've read and the documentaries they've made about it 
the first person they offered the part to was Tom Cruise. Now, in 83, at the beginning of 83, Tom Cruise really wasn't a name yet. But in 83, Cruise made uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders, uh, kind of a sex comedy called Losing It, all the right moves, and then, of course, his breakout hit, Risky Business. So if he takes this movie, it's coming out, out off the hills of, uh, off the heels of uh, Risky Business. But allegedly, he turned it down to do another role. My guess, it was probably to do Risky Business just because of the way the kind of timetable lines up, it feels like. The next person they went to, uh, they had in line for Tom Cody, was Eric Roberts. Hmm. And apparently, they they had him like locked into the role, but he backed out last minute without giving a, re- giving a reason for it. I believe, based off that, I think he just finished... Or I think he just finished filming Bob Fosse Star 80, just by the way timetable is. It's around that time. I don't know Mm -hmm. if he was doing it before or what, but it's around that time. They also apparently looked at Patrick Swayze for the role of Tom Cody. Okay. Yeah. Um, But they were having no luck with kind of anyone. And it was around this time that Walter Hill's girlfriend at the time and future wife, uh, Hildy Gottlieb, gave him a tip about a young actor she was representing because she was his agent that could be good for Tom Cody. Now, Gottlieb was also the one who tipped off Hill about Eddie Murphy for 48 hours after Richard Pryor turned the movie down. So Hmm. you just made the biggest star in the world possibly at this point. You're going to take that tip of, oh, maybe she has good instincts with an actor. Yeah. Uh, That actor she told Hill was uh, Michael... Uh, Michael Paré, who mm-hmm. had just played the lead role in a film called Eddie and the Cruisers, which starred Tom Berenger uh, as well. It's funny. Uh, one of the editors in the, in the one of the documentaries on the, on the Blu-ray said, yeah, going to see Eddie and the Cruisers. I'm like, yeah, this guy's great to be Tom Cody. Tom Berenger would be amazing as Tom Cody. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. The other guy. Mm. So after Paré, uh, after Paré, uh, was cast they began building out the rest of the actors for it so for the role of ellen aim the famous singer who returns to her hometown helen gross had written the character as a 28 year old woman and because of that the front runner for the film front runner for the role was daryl hannah who was only a year off of blade runner mm-hmm. uh, the other leading possibility was the 18 year old diane lane who had previously played a singer two years before in a small musical drama called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which is actually good uh, and has a mm-hmm. young Ray Winstone in it and a young Laura Dern in it. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know if it, it's, it was hard to find at one point. I don't know if it still is. I've, I've queued that one up several times on Criterion and like almost watched it. And then it's and good. Then it's an interesting, like kind of like, like rock drama because you're seeing it's like a, it's on, a, it's like a tour and they're this young girl punk rock like like kind of pop punk like david david bowie inspired ray winstone's like part of the sex pistols type group and then there's these like older people who are like almost like like kiss makeup type people and you're seeing like these three eras of music and how like each one is aging out and one, like one's aging out one's getting big it's all it's an interesting kind of concept hmm. but she had done that now, but the main reason they were looking at her was because she had just recently finished filming Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders, which was a high-profile po- project at that time, and it had yet to be released, but she was they thought she'd become a star based off that. And according to Larry Gross, 
Ron Howard's Splash was casting at the exact same time, and the role of Madison the Mermaid was narrowed down between Daryl Hannah and Diane Lane as well. Oh no! So way. Hannah got allegedly. This is what this is what it said. Allegedly, Hannah got Splash. Lane got Streets of Fire. They were they were actively trying to market correct each other. Yes. Um. And when it came to the role of Raven, the motorcycle villain for the movie, young filmmaker Catherine Bigelow, uh, oh. who was da- who was dating David Geiler at the time, one of Hill's collaborators and business partners, recommended they cast this young actor who played a motorcycle gang member in her directorial debut, The Loveless, and that would be Willem Dafoe. See how everything's kind of just like you're adjacent of all these big people at the mm-hmm. same exact time? Um, the role that changed the most during the casting process was McCoy. Originally named Menendez and written for a Latin actor, the production team, Latin male actor, the production team looked at casting Edward James Almos for the role. Huh? So two Blade Runner yep. alum. Two Blade possibly, Runner almosts. Almost, yeah. Uh, but when Amy Madigan came... Amy Madigan came in to read for the role of Tom Cody's sister, Reva. She told him that she really wanted to read for the role of Menendez instead. She thought she could play that role better uh, and it should be a woman. Uh, they let her do it and they loved her interpretation of it. So they rewrote the role for a actress, basically. And that's how Madigan got that role. Rick Moranis was cast in the role of Billy Fish because Joel Silver was apparently a big fan of SCTV and Moranis was a friend of his and he was a cast member on that show at the time. And it was a very, it was very much against type for him at this point because he really hadn't been in a lot of movies, just comedy stuff with SCTV. And Moranis had yet to release Ghostbusters, which would come out in 1984, and he would not be cast until later after this movie. So he's on the rise. And in the role of Reva, uh, Walter Hill eventually cast Deborah Van Valkenburg, an actress who was a part of his main cast in The Warriors. And then, as I said, he rounds it out with Bill Paxton, E.G. Daly, Michael T. Williamson, uh, Robert Townsend, and then uh, leaving. So with the cast in order and a studio backing it, Streets of Fire went into production. And that leads us to favorite scenes. So, Thomas, what is one of your favorite scenes in this movie? I mean, everyone has a point. The opening, the opening, you know, it's great. That opening is so insanely good like it's, it's got some some energy to it okay i'm, I'm probably gonna step on I, I tried not to google anything watching this and i'm probably gonna step on your some of your info but um uh-huh the first song and the last song that's got to be jim steinfeld right Stein, simon steinman steinman yes. yeah, yeah yeah yes jim steinman yes 100 very very, like, very meatloaf inspired this should be meatloaf and the last yes. one is bonnie tyler like the the the, the, yes. the final song in the movie i was like this is totally clips of the heart yep um yep yeah it's it's got that kind of like weird operatic yeah like 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 a like a rock and roller who was raised on musical theater like uh it's very distinctive to him and and meatloaf and their collaboration Um, and very and very epic songs like mm -hmm. nowhere fast is like six minutes i think i think tonight uh tonight is what it means to be young it's like six and a half minutes there and that's like that's very much bad of hell like it's mm-hmm. these long operatic songs. Yeah, it's it's got the the opening just has this energy to it, and Diane Lane's great, and then you get these, you know, you're you're being introduced, you're being dropped into this world, which you know, for for better or for worse, this is a very distinctive world yes. that, that Hill has built here. 
and and it all happens in the course of that song and there's yeah there's no dialogue in that scene which uh <laughs> which might help some of its case um yes yes but yeah it's it's great well, yeah like i i told i was i, I was sitting there and I, I you and you had told me I, you you talked to me like the first time you saw this movie and you're like it's great and like but you know there's some stuff and i was watching this like first scene i was like oh man we should have brandon should have had them play this at the new art like immediately <laughs> like this is awesome so yeah. yeah it's a great opener it's a great well it's like it's the it's the sets up diane lane but like the reveal of defoe like let's just talk about because like defoe has really he's been like an extra or whatever in some movies but he's only been like acting in Bigelow's movie but like that reveal of like you're seeing like the silhouette of him mm-hmm. the entire time and then it's that that light that slowly dims oh, up yeah. and you just see his eyes like talk about just a guy who is fully formed as a villain actor not as a villain but a villain actor just right out of the gate in this movie it's, it's insane well, and it, it's so noir it's you've yes. got this huge crowd of people and they're all lit and then this this biker gang pushes their way through the crowd and somehow all of their faces are dark and everyone else in the crowd is lit it's yeah it's it's a wild shot it really is and then and then finally it's lit up and it's willem dafoe with this with this ducktail uh <laughs> hair style from the from the 50s um and then it's just like get him and like it's like now and then everyone bum rushes the stage pull pushes everyone out of the way kidnaps diane lane bill paxton gets punched out by leaving um and like the just in the sound design too in this moment too like I, there's this part that i just always think back think about is when she's being kidnapped and taking out of the theater there's just like echo sounds of her screams that you're hearing like i remember watched that this is one of the best openings i've seen and i i still believe that i think it's one of the most underrated openings of a movie up there with like tony scott's the hunger where you're just like mm-hmm. okay i'm I'm bought into this idea of what this movie is and then stuff happens and it and it fumbles as we go on um yeah it's 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 fantastic and we'll talk about the ending a little bit too i guess i ending is also fantastic again the ending is also like operatic massive like uh just a great ending for a movie that you almost wish you would have saw does mm-hmm. that make sense it's like well, it's, it's, you, you know you, you you talked about the inspiration of flash dance which which we talked about back in and, and we talked about the hunger as well this this the kind of influx of the music video yeah influence the mtv generation as far as editing and, and filmmaking goes and and the, the that kind of of editing really works in these two sequences i don't think the editing in this movie always works when it comes to you know making a narrative film but as far yeah. as making a concert video in the in the first scene and the last scene it absolutely works it is so full of energy it's it's addictive and mm-hmm. and once again diane lane in the in the end as well is 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 fantastic and then there's also talking about the editing it's the um i think it's the sorcerer song when they're walking like the the neon type landscape of the city when Mm -hmm. it's the like they have the like cut to black like the black frames and they come up and it's like pulsating you know i'm talking about Mm -hmm. where they meet eg daily and they're they're actually showing the music video of diane lane on the tv Mm -hmm as they're going through it and even that right there is just like fantastic and i think some of these they brought in i think that one specifically they brought in a music video editor to edit that video 
for it to be played like a music video in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I think the edit, the main editor, I believe was, um, Freeman, a Davies maybe. And then they brought in, I think it was one of them, but they brought in like other ones to do some of the, the music sequences basically. Um, and that's why you kind of had that energetic kind of like, uh, vibe, uh, or attitude about it. And yeah. And then, and then you get into that open after the opening and you meet Tom Cody and even the meeting Tom Cody on the train is good. And then it starts to get a little weird when like they keep doing the same edit over and over again during the credits. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I feel like we're, we're losing, we're losing the steam that we had. We're losing the Mm -hmm. the progress. And yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, he's walking into the diner and we're like freeze frame. And then then he's taking off his coat and it's freeze frame. I'm like, this is not, it's a lot of shoe leather. And this is not as epic as that concert we just saw was, but you're treating it like it, like he is. Yes. And, and not to, not to criticize uh, Michael Paré, but he is the weakest link of this movie. Yes, yes, he is the weakest, and that that was the. And I don't know. I don't, and 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 watching it this time, I can't fully blame him because the script is not wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting getting kind of your backstory with what Hills kind of, you know, to take a more modern term, his his kind of headcanon for tom cody is because he does he he walks onto the screen like hill thinks he is the coolest guy ever yes and you know kind of the 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 interpersonal drama that that we see throughout between him and ellen is like he's like oh you're that star and like i'm i'm not and i can't live in that world and the and the movie is being like yeah but tom's a star too tom's a badass he's an action hero but we're watching and we're like yeah you're not you're (laughs) yeah you're not as good as ellen like she's yeah she's a lot better than you yeah um but yeah you know i think to take another kind of more modern term there's this idea of like the the mary sue right which gets thrown yeah. around a lot and is a is a is fairly misogynistic term but um it absolutely applies to men it's this idea of like you write this character and it's like this character has everything going for them yeah and everything works for them and they're good at everything. And we have absolutely no idea why. Yeah. And, and, and Tom is very much a Mary Sue in this movie. Yeah. And that's why I can't really blame Paré for it because it feels like he's the, as a character, he is the least interesting character of the bunch. Yeah. It's like McCoy. Interesting. It's this woman soldier who she, her, her line is like, I ran out of wars. I'm like, that's a very noir line i ran mm. out of wars to fight um and then rick moran rick moranis is the one person i think really nails the like noir dialogue that it's going <laughs> for like he comes the closest where i'm like he's not doing a bad job at this like he's actually like bl- playing the the kind of like uh slimy man uh music manager Mm-hmm. and like but yeah it's like he but again talk about like character development he's he's a guy also like alan where he got he's from the same air or not too far away but he grew up in like a kind of a shady neighborhood and got himself out and never wants to go back to the battery where it's called mm-hmm. um and ellen ellen is also kind of like not from not the richmond's not as bad but it's like she's got now this like small city that that has no future for her and so there's like there's I guess there's stakes to their characters in some way, and Tom Cody 
it's like he's trying to make him a man with no name type character mm-hmm. where he wanders in the town like Clint Eastwood if it's like in in a uh high plains drifter yeah yes. it's like yes, he comes yes, to the yes. town as high plains drifter I mean it could be any Eastwood movie but that's just the one that popped in my head high plains drifter where he comes in the town and he ha- and he has no like past that you really know about and then you and he's gonna ride in the town at the end it's even like a mad max type character like it's like he comes into town does the thing and then leaves and leaves everyone alone mm-hmm. but yeah it's like but yeah it's just it doesn't it doesn't fully work and yeah I, and I, I think he, i think you with something like that you you know with with eastwood and even when you're going back to um the kurosawa like uh mifune kind mm-hmm. of characters that obviously leona was inspired by it's like the he, he has to walk into the story and then that story is everything yeah and, and this one's trying to get us all involved in tom's sister and tom's mm-hmm. romantic background with ellen and, and so it's like they want him to be this man with no name but they also want us to care about his backstory and you can't you can't have it both you ways can't. you can't and i agree with that and that's that's a big reason why the character just doesn't really really work um but let's talk about stuff we actually like because i keep we're going <laughs> negative here um I, I like rick moranis as i said i think some of the jokes he does and i think he plays against type fairly well here as billy fish um and there's parts where I give him a little bit of leeway because I think the dialogue is just so stilted towards <laughs> the specific era of film. Um, and then I like, I, and then I think Defoe, I think Defoe is like, as just fully formed that scene when they, when, when they're, when they go to the battery to like basically rescue Diane Lane to rescue Ellen. And they have the big, like get her out of there and they have the kind of the big shootings of all the motorcycles exploding like in the middle mm-hmm. of the factory and then you have defoe who's in this like fisherman leather like like like, Is like it latex it's like shiny black yeah, leather it's shiny yes. overalls with like nothing underneath it is yeah. wild and he's and still the, got that the, the the sharpest ducktail i've ever seen and it's just it, like it I mean, if you told me this is Norman Osborn before he became Norman Osborn, I would believe you <laughs> because he just comes like it's like Norman Osborn has like rock days before he gets like really rich. Uh, but he just comes out and like Defoe has this glare and this like wicked like smile. It feels like about him. And he's just like, I want Tom Cody. And, or I, or I want you. I, or I want you. Like, who are you? Like, I want I want like I'm going to I'm going to find you. I'm going to kill you, basically. And it, he's it, when, when comparing Paré in that moment to Defoe, it's like it's it's uncomparable of how how charismatic Defoe is compared to the character of Tom Cody. Mm-hmm. Like Ra- like Ra- even the name Raven is a much better name. Like like Tom Cody is is just kind of it's there. But yeah, I and so and then I and then I kind of like the back half of when they are trying to get back to richmond and they meet the sorrells on the bus mm-hmm. and they go with like the neon city and they have the like the i think i love when moranis had when, when um when moranis to talk the cops out of, like letting them go basically and he's he's like we got a gig you're gonna make us miss right now like and, and starts like bribing them basically i like i like that scene and i like mm-hmm. when they're singing beforehand to diane lane and stuff um one thing I noticed this time I thought was funny. Just this is shows you when you have someone so kind of a Blu-ray or whatever, and you're watching it close up. When they're driving up to the cops and they have it blockaded, 
and you Amy Madigan's driving the bus, you see the people inside the bus, and it's not any of the actors in the movie. It's <laughs> all it the still stand- her driving. It's, though? it's it's still her driving, but like E.G. Daily person is like someone who's in their like late forties woman in a wig. It looks like. And then it's like Rick Moran's character has like a beard or something. It looks like from the same. I'm like, oh, that's none of the actors. Like, but they have Amy Madigan for some reason. The only people who are in the scene, um, it was just weird. Um, and yeah, it, it has a very. It feels like when watching it that you can tell the guy who made the Warriors made this movie. Yeah, where you have mm-hmm. all the different like like city like like boroughs basically where it's like there's the battery there's the richmond there's the neon empire is what's called i think in the script like you have all these different worlds you're going into um that he's trying to build and and yeah it's just i it's so hard to talk about because i just keep thinking about how amazing that opening is and how amazing that closing is and you just wish it all kind of (laughs) added together um but is there anything else here you want to bring up like scenes wise that you like or scenes you don't like because we're here at that moment in time um how do you feel about the fight i'll ask this how do you feel about the final fight why why sledgehammers why? i know i don't know why don't why, in the, why <laughs> in the daytime that's the other thing i want to know is like why not in the nighttime i feel like the entire movie is at night I just mean, I set like, that thing that's of- very it's very kind of john ford of like all the like you know bill paxton runs off and gets the townsfolk and you know it's not about ultimately it's not about tom cody winning the fight it's about him inspiring everyone to stand up for themselves like that's that's very western uh i get that but yeah it's just sledgehammers just threw me so much (laughs) it's like switch plates they and they've had both they've had both they've shown it yeah because because actually my sledgehammers is really good with a butterfly knife that's the one he has really good with butterfly knife sledgehammers and you're like yeah that was what, bizarre what? when he was like i know what we need and then he just pulls out two sledgehammers from his from his uh, like it it would be better if like they somehow established that there's like, a, it's like there's a quarry or something nearby like that like that's part of the like the lore of this mm-hmm. world but she's like sledgehammers is the name of the game here and, and like you know there, there are all, all these moments that he like that hill pulls from westerns um that that work here like you know that that feels very much like a western when you you, that they've got that shot from kind of the ground level when when defoe kind of stumbles back and he's got his arms raised like he's ready to fight and then yeah and then uh tom cody just goes up and like taps him and he falls over that's uh yeah yeah. that's that's classic that's a classic shot but it works it works well in here but uh yeah there's a different ending to that fight the original thought original plan for that ending was Tom Cody takes out a knife and kills def- and kills Raven. Mm. And that was the end of the fight. But they changed it because at some I'll mention later, at some point Walter Hill was very much like this is a fantasy. I want to make sure you don't think like anyone will die in this movie. Even with the explosions or whatever, you want to feel like oh they're going to get up and walk away from that <laughs> is mm-hmm. the thing. Um so yeah. And then and then yeah i'll let's just bring back up the ending real quick again because i think the ending is just as good as the beginning like with everything and like take out the what's you've seen beforehand but like i think even the good send-off for for tom cody where like he's again the western hero who rides in the town and now rides out of town Mm -hmm. but now he has a friend to go with him with mccoy Mm -hmm. and like it's it's the watching the the person he once loved gonna have like it's like the ideas are all there 
that would be a great payoff for everything, but it's the setup that just doesn't work for a lot mm-hmm. of the character stuff. Is like, and I like the Sorrells and the and, and the ending stuff too with all those guys. I really like them throughout the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, any other thing you want to say about favorite scenes or? I don't think so. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> Are you still confused if you like the movie or not, Thomas? Yes, very much okay. so. So I'll ask that. So your top things are opening and closing are the two best things in the movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> not, not, and not in some kind of asshole way to be like, oh, no, I like I when understand. it ended, but no. like that, yeah, yeah that's, those those are, are the, the those are the, the the most memorable parts of the movie for sure they are it's like I, I i will find myself watching the opening and the closing a lot and just being like wow this is just so good and it makes me want to watch the movie again and then i watch the movie and i'm like okay we're really kind of and then and then again the ending just makes me it kind of makes me forget about the stuff that i was questioning throughout the movie mm-hmm. um but yeah so let's move on to onset life to get into to get into all that and we'll talk about scenes and stuff as we go more too so because they were shooting at they were shooting a universal movie they decided to use the universal backlot for the majority of the production now walter hill hated how movies looked on on backlots because they said they looked fake but he felt for this comic book like movie the artificiality to it would help with the tone of the film mm-hmm. they they found a section of the backlot that had been used since the 1930s and I think it either had some elevated tracks to it or they added them to the area. But I remember at one point doing one of the tours one year where I think they showed us that area and it had like elevated tracks there. So I wonder, but they had it in storage at least. And so they brought these old elevated train tracks for it. Um, they decided to shoot a lot of the stuff in the Richmond area in Universal, but they wanted to shoot like underground sections and the actual train stuff in Chicago. So mm. they went to Chicago to shoot all the like lower Wacker drive, Tom Cody and them on the train. Um, and they would start, start production in Chicago first and they would shoot there for 10 days in April of 1983. And while there, they were plagued with bad weather. It rained, it hailed, it snowed while they were there apparently um and then one of the things they shot all this they shot all the train sequences in chicago so they actually rented out rented out a section of a train that they would basically shoot in all night that would not stop and they would have they had to hire two conductors one on the front and one on the back to where if they they reached the end of a line they could just go back and go the opposite way instead of having to reset the train essentially Hmm. So they were, so they they would do that for nights, basically, just shooting all that stuff in the interior of it. So when it came to shooting on the backlot Universal Studios, the production team ran to some issues, and that major issue was: can you figure out what, if you're producing this film, Thomas? What's the biggest thing with this you have to worry about? If you're shooting at Universal Studios that backs up to a neighborhood, what's the oh, thing all you have to the worry motorcycles about? making too much noise at night? Yeah. So they had to and, they just, and the explosions, I guess, and yeah. the explosions. So they knew there was no chance that those neighborhoods would let them shoot all that stuff at night with motorcycles and explosions. So they decided to tarp the entire set, which covered about three or four streets on the back lot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the director of photography, Andrew Laszlo, who had been working for decades in film and television, told them that tarping it 
would not work <laughs> because any type of wind would make the tarp move, allowing for sunlight to come in to the set. Mm-hmm. They went against that and did it anyway. Uh, the production, one of the production designers recalls the day they put the tarp up and how it was a marvel to see the entire grip team. And there's pictures of this, <laughs> of them putting the tarp on the top of the, the city, like the, like the city streets of the universal backlot. And they said, and then we just saw the tarp begin to move a little bit. A breeze had come in and that little ripple in the tarp soon became a 30 foot wave. <laughs> like a tsunami. Gonna, I was going to say, that's going to be a sound nightmare too. Yes, I'll go to that too. And so basically the the tarp starts going and it actually rips off. Like they say, you start hearing all the like the rings that held it on, like just snapping. And it sounded like gunshots going off, like because of how fast it was going. And Lawrence Gordon, the producer of the film, tried to make it to where Universal had to pay for the mess up. But he got a call from Lou Wasserman, who was the head of the studio and said, no, 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 no. We're not paying for that. That's coming out of your budget. So the tarp measured, the tarp ended up costing $1.2 million. Oh my God. To build. It was 1,240 feet long, 220 feet wide over the main, over multiple sets. Um, Talking about sound stuff. You had that with the, the movement and everything. Also birds would nest in there is what it was. And so birds would make noise and the ripple effect of that would make noise. And apparently before for takes, they would actually shoot off shotguns to scare and quiet the birds. So they wouldn't make noise during <laughs> takes. A lot of the art department had worked on several indie productions before this movie. So they knew how to make most out of what they had. And they were able to redress most of the back back lot to look kind of like a Chicago like city. And the big thing they wanted to add to the city was neon. And one of them had just gotten off of Xanadu, which had a lot of neon in it, mm-hmm. neon lighting. And another one had just recently finished working on Blade Runner. So mm. they decided that neon lights would play a big part of the production design. Now, when it came to music, this is, you kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, the initial idea was to use all 1950s music for the soundtrack and the, the characters would sing those songs. The studio, however, feeling like they were a little skittish about this movie all of a sudden, wanted to like make a soundtrack off of it to hope make money for it if the movie didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. Walter Hill basically said it really came down to either do the soundtrack and make the movie, don't do the soundtrack, don't make the movie. So he relented and they decided to do original music for the film. They would then go to Jimmy Iovine, who yeah. helped supervise uh, the music that was created for the film. And Jimmy Iovine had worked with people like John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks, and Meatloaf as either a producer or recording uh, before doing this movie. And they also brought in famed producer and songwriter Jim Steinman, as we talked about earlier, to write the opening song, Nowhere Fast. And the closing song, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. I'll be having more information about that in a minute about that song. Uh, Steinman as Steinman, as we said, was also big collaborator with meatloaf and was the main composer and, or was the only composer and writer of bad out of hell. So for the theater sections of the film, they shot the interiors, the concert 
the first concert at the famous Wiltern in Los Angeles, which I actually oh, went to the first really? first time last or this past weekend. So I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's where I recognize this from. Yeah, that's a great uh, venue. Yeah, so it had been kind of an, it had fallen in disarray in the 1970s, and a new owner had bought it in 1981, and they had been renovating it. And so Streets of Fire was the first one to come in and actually use the new newly renovated space. Um, and they would shoot for two weeks for the opening of the movie there. Uh, and they shot like a concert. They shot the whole kidnapping sequence. They had like over 500 extras for the concert is what it was. Um, and the eventual like kidnapping stuff afterwards mm-hmm. for the motorcycle scenes. They hired actual hell's angels to play the gang members. Oh, and, that always and, goes great. Yeah. And they had about 15 stunt drivers who would do all the stunts. Uh, leaving said that most of the hell's angels would get pulled over every day after leaving set because of how they looked as they drove off the university Studios lot and motorcycles. He's like, I would drive away and see them all being pulled over. Um, for the factory scenes, they actually shot those down in Wilmington, California, which is down near long beach at this old soap factory that was about to close and be torn down. And they would shoot there for 10 nights and essentially use it as a backlot as well. Shooting most of the room exterior interiors where like Defoe's playing cards and McCoy runs in or where Diane Lane's tied up. Those were all at this exact like actual old soap factory. Um, but the big club sequence was shot at universal. But at the factory was where some of the most dangerous stunts were. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that they said was really the more dangerous ones was the gang members doing wheelies and tricks. Like, yeah, that one on guy jumping off of that, that uh, ramp. platform. Yeah. Yeah. But if you notice where he was jumping into, he was jumping in between a train track. So mm. they said if he, if he just lands on, if he doesn't land right in the center, the, the motorcycle is flipping over because it's hitting the rail. Yeah, that's no good. And also because they were they were they were going fast on like wet muddy ground. If you look at it's like dirt that's like just it's been rained on basically because this movie there's water everywhere mm-hmm. if you watch carefully on the on the ground to get the neon. Um, also while shooting down Long Beach, apparently I don't know if it's still a thing, but apparently uh, if you go out of L.A. proper you can use gasoline for explosions but if you're in if you're in la proper you can't use gasoline you have to use other like some other alternative thing for it so Hmm. because they were shooting down long beach all the explosions they used were were like based in gas essentially (laughs) great so they they uh, the ad was like yeah just the effects team knows like once you cross the border like once you cross the like county or city lines you're like oh bring out the gas like we can do this now <laughs> so that's why the explosions are so big and again i like that whole sequence when they're trying to get her out of there and everything um but as i said even with the big explosions walter hill kind of decided while making the movie he wanted it to be kind of a bloodless film and he wanted it to be more like a fairy tale again it's a rock and roll fable so he didn't want mm-hmm. to be too too violent is the thing and while on set, Michael Pere did not get along with several people, or he had he had I won't say get along. He had issues with several people on set. Two two people mainly. Uh, he recalls how difficult it was working with Rick Moranis because Moranis would constantly insult him, thinking <laughs> it was funny. He said that Moranis' first words to him were, "Do you just act cool, or are you really cool?" And Pere thought that would just that was the 
beginning of what would be not a good friendship. Uh, <laughs> but because Pere was because Moranis was like good friends with Joel Silver, Pere thought he couldn't say anything and didn't say anything. And again, it's he's still kind of new to to like a big big budget film, so he didn't fully know what to do, and that also made it hard for him to work with Walter Hill because he was I think expecting some sort of direction from Walter Hill with certain things about the acting. And Walter Hill just kind of assumed he would know what to do. And really? Yeah. Well, Walter Hill spe- didn't give him any acting notes in this? Well, I don't know if he did, but basically the, the example that, that Perret brought up was that he was like having to do ADR for like a love scene that he had, that love scene has Diane Lane and he didn't know what to do. He kind of started to panic and they had to like call, they basically had to call in Walter Hill to come give him direction because he wasn't there for it. Mm. And Perret kind of feels like, Hill didn't love working with him because he asked too much. They would basically say he was too needy. He felt like he was mm. too needy for Walter Hill because he had worked with people like Nick Nolte, who Nick Nolte, not really a needy guy from what I can tell in terms of an actor. And, and Perret was like this young guy who like wanted help. And it seems like Hill was not as focused on doing that mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Uh, for the final fight of the film between Defoe and Perret, uh, Perret, they had over 200 extras shot with six cameras all on film by the way six cameras and they filmed for 11 days what? uh just for the there i think there was even more so that was just for that was just for parade and defoe um they apparently shot for a whole an, a whole other week with just stunt doubles according to parade oh my god so three weeks of that sequence um apparently hill would do 70 setups a day with that fight scene um, and they said it was fairly easy to map out, like choreograph, because Defoe was so athletic that they could plan out a fight because he knew what to do. Um, originally, okay, here's the part I was going to bring up. Originally, the final song of the movie was not to be "Tonight Is What It Means to Be Young." That mm-hmm. was not supposed to be the final song of the movie. Can you guess what the final song of the movie was supposed to be? Well, I mean, the movie's called Streets of Fire, and it's not it's- anywhere in the soundtrack. <laughs> It was supposed to be Streets of Fire by, but it was Diane. Lane, well, Diane Lane's character singing Streets of Fire from Bruce Springsteen. They apparently even shot that as the ending because they were under the pressure, under the impression they were getting the rights to the song, but <laughs> yeah. they didn't. They did Bruce not. Bruce Springsteen will agree. Yeah. Yeah. The next plan was to end the movie with. I can dream about you by the Sorrells, mm-hmm. which Walter Hill actually liked. I think they actually cut it for that, where it's like it's it's that kind of group kind of ending, and that's the big ending. But the that's the that's the only song that I knew. Oh like really? That, yeah, that one. I mean, that was a fairly big radio hit. Like, I mean, yeah. they, they play that one on like easy listening radio, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was going to be the ending, and like, and, and when you watch it, it kind of feels like it could be an ending. Mm-hmm. like everyone's kind of everything's kind of joyous like the sisters out there singing the the song and all that but they're like the studio was like no no no, we want another song for the ending yes and that's well, when I, they and i'm glad they leave that one in because the sorrels go through a lot in that movie yeah. so they need let, their, let us know that they got big they basically. need their moment in the spotlight for sure yeah uh and so they brought in jim steinman again to write the ending song tonight is what it means to be young. And because that was, that was months after he wrote nowhere fast, apparently. But at this point they did not have the will turn to shoot the sequence at. 
So they had to recreate the Wiltern on the Universal lot to shoot the final number. Apparently, also, Diane Lane had went off and shot Rumblefish during the break, so she had to wear a wig because she cut her hair for that movie. So she's wearing a wig in the final sequence of the film. Production would finally wrap in August of 1983, and that means we move into the aftermath of Streets of Fire. So they'd actually been editing the movie as they were doing the production, because the production, I think, lasted for 14 weeks or so. It lasted for a while. Uh, apparently, five weeks in, Larry Gross, the co-writer, turned to Walter Hill and Hill was like, we're making a much weirder movie than we thought we would. And Gross stated that they didn't anticipate what the combination of elements was going to be. He said, we had a very conscious design concept of the movie, but I think we didn't fully grasp how strong it would be. As they got farther into editing, Larry Gross says they realized that Michael Pere was not playing as well as they had hoped he would. And even Pere said in one of the film's retrospective documentaries that he wished he was able to watch his performance while they were in production so he could actually improve upon it as he went. Um, I think Gross had said, like, we should just wait for Tom Cruise, is what he said <laughs> like in, in, in certain interviews. They soon started working on a score for the film, and they actually hired James Horner, Oh. Who had an who had an idea for like a, a, he he wanted like an experimental type score for the film, but the team soon realized that while it was a good score, it didn't match the movie, and so they fired James Horner and they brought in uh, Ry Cooter, who I think had worked with Walter Hill before, mm. and and he added more of a rock and blues type score, which was not what Horner had in mind. Uh, Cooter, I think, okay. I, I he pops up a lot in kind of those eighties rock or blues. I, I think the movie I think about is the Ralph Macchio and Crossroads. You ever seen that movie or heard of that movie? I have not. I'm very familiar with that that uh, poster, but but I've yes. never seen it. But yeah, he, he he does all the guitar playing. I think in that or most of the guitar playing in that movie. And so while editing was finished, uh, Walter Hill went straight into making Brewster's Millions while editing the movie. Mm. So he was not really involved in the early publicity of the film. Uh, so because of that, he didn't have really much say. And while the team had trepidation about Perret's performance, they were fairly optimistic about the movie. However, the Universal marketing team was not. Uh, they hated the term a rock and roll fable, and they fought with <laughs> Hill, Silver, and Gordon over it, but, they, but Gordon and, or Hill and the team won out. Uh, the posters of the film kind of came with the sound or were were the posters for the film were based off the soundtrack cover, which was like this neon colored, like red and purple and blue. It's a cool poster. Mm -hmm. I like yeah. the poster um, and like woodcut. So it adds kind of cool texture to it. Um, but when looking back on it, several people believe that universal didn't know what to do with this film because it was so different. And essentially there was very little publicity or advertising for it. Walter Hill said they didn't know what to do with it, but he also said that a lot of filmmakers always say that when their movies fail. So maybe it just was going to fail in general. Um, Lawrence Gordon, the producer felt like they didn't have a lot of faith in the movie and they actually put it. They, he said that at that point movie, the movie count or company studios had an a track and a B track. We, we talked about this with different pictures, but they had an a track for like what the top line theaters were and what the B-movie theaters were. And he felt like they basically put Streets of Fire in all the B-movie theaters 
that were in like lesser, less populated areas, basically. They did blow up the film to make it a 70 millimeter print at one point, and they released that on a few screens. But the film would eventually open on June 1st, 1984, which was a week after Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm. It opened on 1,150 theaters, and it made only $2.4 million in its opening weekend. After 10 days at the box office, the film had only grossed $4.5 million, while its competitor, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, which released the same day, had made $35 million in that same amount of time. Um, so Le- Leah Gross apparently got a call from Hill about it after it failed, and the the line that Joel Silver said about the movie was, today is what it means to be dead, uh, when they got the box office numbers back <laughs> from the film. Uh, it would finish off with $8 million against a $14.5 million budget. So pretty much a failure. Uh, the reviews were mixed with several praising the look of the film, but many criticizing the weak screenplay. In some cases, people call it a misogynistic screenplay uh, with how it treats the women characters. Ebert would give it three stars. I think basically liking the musical stuff and not liking a lot of the other stuff it feels like. Um, but yeah, and while it fell at the box office, it still gained a little bit of a life with audiences outside of that, specifically overseas. Apparently people in Germany and several other European countries loved the movie. And apparently it was a massive hit in Japan. Hmm. And they believe it was because of the, the, it's fifties like retro look to it. And even I read that like some of the, some of the wardrobe they pulled was from Japan. Like the scene, the scene when Tom Cody's introduced the diner, when those guys come in and had the fight, the the costume designer, I think Marilyn Vance, talked about how that style was they take they take taken from Japan and youth culture in Japan. Hmm. So like it just kind of transcended cultures in a way, and people were fascinated by this America 1950s, 80s style. But it's still kind of seen as this underseen Walter Hill movie. A lot of Walter Hill fans at the time didn't like the movie because it wasn't 48 hours and it wasn't uh, the warriors. Right. So, so Thomas, what worked about this movie? Um, I think, I think the world building works. I think it is a fully realized, like I get it, you know, it's this like futuristic fifties, like biker gangs, greasers, Mm -hmm. uh, dystopia kind of thing. Um, I I think we're kind of within that first scene, we get the world Mm -hmm. 100%. I think the music works absolutely. Yeah. Um it it the the whole thing not and not just the this Jim Steinman stuff but kind of the the way they bring in swing and yeah. and and it's all kind of filtered through an 80s uh you Vibe. know it's, it's yeah. yeah 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 it's all it's all very 80s but but the 50s influence is, is definitely still there. Um and the the look of it, I think it, 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 I mean, that goes along with the world building, but, but I, I, I do think it is, it is fully complete in creating this world. Yeah. And, and that, that alone makes it worth seeing in just kind of a, this really interesting, unique vision of this kind of dystopian future. No, I, I agree completely. And this is one I always feel like I would love to see what a remake or something would be like of this movie, if it's possible to pull off. Mm-hmm. because i i just feel like 
outside the musical stuff, there's just a, a lot of room for improvement. It's like you ha- and the thing is what's so hard is that you have such a great cast. Like and for yeah. the and the supporting roles. You have such a great cast. And I and even again, I I, I Perea is kinda like there's certain movies you watch someone and you're like, I'm not gonna say they're good or bad because I think sometimes the writing does them just does them dirty, basically. And watching this this, this time, I, I feel like if he would have played this more like Man with No Name and had very little dialogue, even if he's like Gosling and Drive, if he's something like that, but he just has too much dialogue to make that character who's supposed to be menacing and uh, um, uh, 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 this this expat, basically, it just doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And they need to trim that down. Um, yeah. But that goes to that work. But yeah, I think, I think Madigan works. I think Moranis works. Uh, I love, I love Diane Lane. I wish she had more to do in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, the Sorrells I like. So yeah, it's like, it's uh, to me, it's like, I feel like all the supporting characters are there. It's just, it's, it's hard to, it's the, the ingredients aren't working out basically. And that leads us to anything not work about this movie, Thomas. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it's interesting that you say that kind of Perret had some concerns about Hill not giving him direction because it, it feels like everyone and and I I didn't I like Amy Madigan I didn't I wasn't as impressed with Amy Madigan's performance in this as okay. as I think you were but mm-hmm. everyone feels like they're struggling with the dialogue in this and it and it and it and it feels like they're kind of looking to Hill because it's like it's like hey man you wrote this like. What am what am I doing with this? And it and it feels like he's not giving them anything. Yeah. Um, and you know it's like, and I'm sure it's tough. Someone hands you the script and they say, you know, this is set in like the future, and then you read it and it's this like, is this tongue in cheek? It's this like very stilted detective movie speak. But like, am I supposed to be playing this off for jokes? How am I supposed to be playing this? And like you said, yeah. I do think Rick Moranis gets it probably the most yeah. of anybody but Perret is very obviously has no idea where he's supposed to be going with this uh and and i think madigan sometimes hits on it and, and other times I, I was like she's she's kind of struggling with it too um and i think that that is ultimately the big thing that it boils down to is the script's not super strong but if hill had helped them kind of tap in how to best play those lines it's it's very stilted and it's on purpose and it's yeah it's all to go into this world which he's created visually that i do think he's visually created well and production design created Mm -hmm. well and the you know all his his vision for the world is great and i can see him going and this is the way everybody talks they all talk like they're out of a gangster movie but but somewhere it got lost in translation because like you know it works because I feel like it works in Brick for the most part with Ryan yes. Johnson. So, like, and, that, and, and that works. This, this and there is this kind of tongue in cheek nature to Brick. And, yes. I, and I feel like that that is something that Ryan Johnson obviously had to sit down with everyone in Brick and go, your character is in high. You know, it's like you know, oh, what's her face that plays the um, the girl with the eyes. <laughs> girl with from the Brick. Eyes. Yeah, kind of the, the main yeah. girl in Brick is like this. Like yes, you're you're a high school girl, but like you're also you know the madame at this at this like poker lounge kind of thing like you know i'm 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 certain that that ryan johnson sat them all down and said you're playing this like you are in high school but you are also blank yeah. and 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 they they get it and that's that's kind of you know the nature of brick 
and and it just doesn't i don't know it just doesn't feel like anybody other than rick moranis and, and diane lane really yeah. kind of catch on to what the jig is here and and, and, I, and I think diane lane works because she has the like possibly some of the least amount of dialogue yeah, and, compared to well, everyone they else don't, they don't really like they don't really give she 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 kind of ellen kind of speaks like a normal person like she doesn't really yes. have that like yeah see yeah. like uh, yeah see yeah, yeah, they they don't really kind of lean into that with her character. No, but that kind of makes sense because she's the pop star. Yeah, like she's mm-hmm. the most modern of this world. Um, but yeah, it's it's like just something. Yeah, just something. It just doesn't. The dialogue just doesn't land. And I, again, I think if you fix that, I think you have like it could be one of the best. It could be one of the better movies of the decade. It feels like to me. It's like, I mean, a friend of mine says like, yeah, it's like, it's so close to being one of the greatest movies of the decade, but you just never heard about it. Like basically it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that close to like being there. Um, and it just, it can't, it can't fold it. I can't stick the landing with it. Yeah. And it is all this stuff like the, the music and the production design yeah. and the casting and, and going, Oh my gosh, Willem Dafoe. Like look at that. Co- look at Willem Dafoe in that costume. There's so many things yeah. that are so distinctive and unique and you want to go, I love this. Yeah, and it's just like whenever they talk, it's like, oh, maybe I don't. I like it more because it's like because it's a because of the flaws to it. I kind of I like it because of that, because you yes. got to think, I, it's yeah, still- I, you know, all that all that being said. Yeah, I think this would be a blast to watch with a, with a group of people. And I think it and I'm surprised when you say like, oh, I should have heard of this. It should, it should have been. I'm surprised this doesn't have midnight movie clout as much as some of the other movies of the 80s. Yeah, because midnight movies like you can get away with the flaws to it. That's mm-hmm. what makes it endearing. And like, I would love to see, and I know they've shown it. I think once and I missed it at the Arrow, but like, I would love to see that opening and closing mm-hmm. with an audience and what it is in the big screen, and especially if it's a seventy millimeter, like they like they had versions of it. God, that would be just glorious yeah, to and, see. And I feel like that there's definitely an audience for it. I feel like you know if yeah. you just posted you know that, that picture of willem dafoe and in, in a leather yeah. overalls you'd get most of the letterbox crowd anyway <laughs> like um it, it's got it's got a draw to it and, and it's yeah. there is something magnetic about it but yeah. it's not necessarily like I, I wouldn't go oh you gotta see this movie it's great i would say like guess see this movie it's a, it's it's a wild ride it's interesting or yeah, it's yeah. interesting yeah it's it's an interesting watch yeah it's a, it's a midnight movie for sure yeah so anything else that didn't didn't work uh i don't think so i think i think okay. that covers it we've, we've, we've covered a lot on that mm-hmm. um not really sure that the action see the, the fight sequence is like he goes up on the roof Amy oh, Madden goes out she holds them at gunpoint yeah. he yeah. starts sniping people from the roof only to then like run inside and then and she and she knows when he's gotten got yeah, her basically and all she's doing is like holding that group at gunpoint while he runs inside and gets her it's yeah that that one yeah i i I was like, what is going on now? Yeah. And then she's I, just like, that's all right, fair. I'm good to go. <laughs> that's fair. I, but I like the, I, I, I like, I like the concept of it as well. Mm-hmm. As it, but yeah, the, the, the logistics of like the plan just feels odd. I get, it's like, oh, cause I thought he was going to do one thing, but then he's doing another thing. And then, yeah, it's like, he go he basically travels from one side of the building, to the other side of the building, like over the gap, essentially. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a yes. lot. Um, so film facts. So one thing, I, it probably could have done this in the aftermath, but apparently at one point, I just don't know why it happened. Uh, um, Reva, Tom Cody's sister, mm-hmm. who's played by Deborah Van Valkenburg, 
uh, I apologize that if that's the wrong name, uh, that last name's a killer, but basically she was supposed to narrate the whole movie oh. and they were supposed to have like a noir narration to it. Two weeks in a row of, of cutting the, the narration, of, of out. cutting the narration. So they cut the narration out. Um, the dancer and, uh, and Torchies, the biker bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know who she is? I do not. She was Jennifer Bill's stunt double in Flashdance. Oh. Her name is nice. Maureen, Maureen Jahan. She got on the role because of Lee Ving. He was like, hey, you guys should hire this girl who just, I just worked with on Flashdance. Hmm. She's a great dancer. So she actually, you get to see her face and much more um, uh, in this movie. So I said that the movie was called, the original script was called The Adventures of Tom Cody book one it was supposed to be a trilogy wow it was supposed to be a trilogy where one basically the idea was that each one was going to be in a different type landscape so the first one was going to be i think in the the first one's going to be set in the snow and the third one would be in the desert and so it was called, the first one was Adventures of Tom Cody, or the whole trilogy was called Adventures of Tom Cody. Uh, the first sequel is going to be called The Far City, and the third one would be called Cody's Return. Hmm. And that was that's why at the end of the movie, he's riding off with McCoy. Mm. It's like, we're going to have more adventures with McCoy and Tom. But okay. they realized that kind of after the, fa- the box office failure, they were not going to make one. But... And also that Tom is the least interesting part of this movie. Of, of the, uh, yeah, I, w- I would see Diane Lane as Ellen yeah. Aim like a tour yeah. tour movie. With the Sorrells, yeah. With the Sorrells, that'd be great. There was, however, an unofficial sequel called Road to Hell that came out in 2008 that starred Michael Pere as Tom Cody and starred Deborah Van Valkenburg as Reva Cody, Tom's sister. What? Yeah. I've never seen it. Um, funny enough, it made one point four million dollars, so an eighth of what Streets of Fire made. Weirdly enough, and it probably was on less theaters. Um, but I don't know if it's available to find. But yeah, they shot it. Unofficial sequel. Can't directed by Albert Pune, who does low budget B movie movies, basically. So there you go. Um, so yeah, so awards. Uh, the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, action with scenes that kills it. Willem Dafoe. Does, does what? Hmm. Too many I scenes. Like, I think it's too many more. Too many scenes. I mean, they have the, he has in the final fight. Here's Bill the Paxton. question: There's Bill Paxton. What about Ed Bigley Jr.? Yes, uh, uh, he's he's all grimy, and I was. But as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, "That's Ed Bigley Jr." <laughs> and he's good. He's not even on the credit <laughs> list on Wikipedia. Not funny super enough. sure what he's doing there. <laughs> it's world building, Thomas. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. So you ha- so we have Bill Paxton. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like Bill Paxton in this because he's really other than the cops, he's really like the only glimpse of what we get of like you know it's something I always bring up anytime we watch anytime we talk about like a Batman movie it's always like what is life like like Gotham is such a hellscape what is life <laughs> like as just a citizen of Gotham and and similarly in this in this city and and Bill Paxton's really the only like person that we meet who's just like yeah. a citizen it's so weird because you watch it 
and Bill Paxton is the, is a much bigger star than Michael Pere. And so it's so weird when looking at Bill Paxton being like kind of the like feels like a lackey because he like worships yeah. oh, Tom hey, Cody. Tom, you're back in town. Yeah. Like you're almost like what would what would happen if Bill Paxton was Tom Cody? Mm-hmm. What's what's that like? Because I think if Bill Paxton near dark and that dude is electric. Yep. And you wonder if like, you could do the same thing here. And I, I, I hate to say it, but like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Never mind. Beats are straight. I'm like going off on other tangents. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're saying Bill Paxton. Yeah. Not any of the Sorrells. Because they're just kind of a group. Yeah. Yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to yeah. pull one. Yeah. They work about as, a, e- as a combo. Now, what about Ichi Daly? That's another I'll throw yeah. out there. Was, she, she, was, she was fine. I, I know she said she was upset with like the like the way her character was handled because she's weird. At, yeah she she's just kind of rolls up and she's like hey yeah. i'm a big fan and then all of a sudden she's hanging out with them and then like at the, yeah. toward the end of the movie she's now like her assistant but they don't yeah. really like and angie daly is a good singer especially at this point in time like she had really good songs out and i think she was like yeah like i wanted to be that type role because i'm a singer i wanted to play that type role and i was playing the because i had the high-pitched voice i was the quirky character so i think i think she mentioned that to hill and that's why he add that kind of brief scene where she's talking to to ellen about like i wish i could write songs like you mm-hmm. like that was that to give her a little bit more depth because without that scene she is just like this weird fan upset like this obsessive fan basically that just like again like I said, becomes her assistant all of a sudden well, let's go with bill paxton that's yeah. that's the that's the whole way to get to bill paxton as beatrice straight tom tom cody it's been a long time pal how's your hammer hanging how's it going clyde well not so hot i got beat up trying to save your old girl i could use a little help with those guys should have been there tom it'd been like the old days when we were in school we'd have kicked ass hey bartender you're gonna shoot the shit all night or you want to give me another drink Hey, Tom, would you get a load of this little honey? She thinks she owns the place. I'm just trying to get myself a drink, pal. Well, maybe you've already had enough, babe. you got to be kidding me. Do I look like I'm kidding? No, maybe you ought to pay up as well. You've been driving up a cab here all night. We're not real big on credit. Are you trying to say that I can't pay? Yeah, let's see the color of your money. They're happy. Yeah, but now I don't like your face. Annie Potts X Factor Awards. Supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable. It's Diane Lane. Really? Yep. Overwhelmed Defoe. Yep. Wow. First scene and the last scene. Okay. Well, Defoe is close, but like honestly, I was I was really surprised. And like I said, I haven't seen the the stains. Um, like if you were to say like Diane Lane plays a rock star, I'd have been like, ah, really? really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, she doesn't strike me as like '80s rock star energy, but she nails it. She does. She does. And I think that was. Again, she, and she's 18 here. Like she, she's able to like pull off leading a rock band and doing it very well. And I think she was worried going into it, so she like really went all out with like the costume and kind of the demeanor. And I think they ha- there was she doesn't. Jimmy Iovine said like an old thing that like it was a mixture of like her voice and some other people's voices. Um, but I think he just combined two singers by the name of Lori Sargent and uh holly sherwood and they became the voice of called fire incorporated was the band name on like the fictional band name on the on the tracks but they don't actually use her voice at all but she does a great job in those two sequences in terms of leading a band i'll go with her i feel like that's also going to tip off what i'm going to say for mvp um maybe not 
we'll see. But Diane Lane for Annie Potts X Factor Award. So what do you want to talk to me about? I got a lot to say to you, Tom. No, you don't. You have nothing to say to me. You want to talk to somebody, go talk to your boyfriend. What was I supposed to do? I had all that work. Things were going real good. Things were starting to happen for me. Yeah, so bye-bye, Tom, right? You're the one that took off and joined the army. Let's forget all this. It's history. From now on, I'm just like you. I do what I'm good at, and I do it for money. Is that why you came and got me? That's right. Billy Fish is paying me ten grand. I just can't believe you'd do that. Maybe you better get used to the idea. And that leads us to the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor songwriter etc i think it's jim steinman <laughs> i think it's i think it is too i think it is too because uh, i don't think that the movie works without those two i mean i don't think the movie is like i still think it kind of works but I, it's like worth watching without those two songs the, yeah. the opening and closing. Yeah, it starts out on a high note it closes on a high note and so you, you come out of it going like oh yeah that was a good time it was because I, I i i agree with that statement that patrick Williams said well like for a moment, for two moments in this movie, you're like, this is the greatest movie ever made. Mm-hmm. And cause they're both just like, it's like the, again, tonight, what it mean, tonight is what it means to be young. Just like the almost like thunderstorm like quality to it. This like eerie, like haunting nature about it. And the crowd's going wild and you're watching just Tom Cody's watching her perform like the dream. She's always wanted. It all works. And like, it the, both those two songs like you said sum up this movie it gets you right into the world and then it reminds you of what this world is at the end mm. like i said if i ever if if someone ever remade it i would just say shoot the first sequence and the last sequence exactly the same and don't change the thing because <laughs> those two songs are just incredible i'll be there Final questions, Thomas. I'm intrigued to hear this. If this film was remade today, who would you cast? Okay. Who who do you, who do you want? Who do you have? Um, I've got Ellen. Okay. I've got Tom. Okay. Got Raven. Okay. And I, I'm sure I could come up with a fish if I needed okay. to. No McCoy. No McCoy. Uh, I could come up with a McCoy. Okay. Okay. Let's go with let's go with Raven first. Let's go with Raven first. Okay. Um I'm trying I'm trying to go hot and young. Okay. You know? I, I I'm gonna give this person a shot. He's hot, he's young, people love him. He's on everybody's any article you read. It's uh-huh. Jacob Alordi for yeah. for Raven. I'm still giving him a shot because other people see something in him that I haven't quite seen yet, but <laughs> what was he just in? Oh, he's in uh, the Priscilla Presley. And he's in the he's in the oh, yeah, he's, he's movie. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, he's on the short list for James Bond, which I'm not thrilled about. Oh, an Australian actor for James Bond. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, I've never seen the Kissing Booth movies, so I can't. He's not good I, in those, but nobody's okay. very good in those. So, That's fair. You know, we yeah, won't hold he, it against who, him. Who, who's he in Deep Water again? Which which kid is it? which person is he? He is the one after Finn Whitrock. Is he, he, the pool, is he the pool one or see is he he's he's the 
I don't think that's that's Finn Whitrock who gets killed in the pool. I think he's the one after. Spoiler that. alert for Deep Water. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's one of them. I got you. I got you. Um, okay, okay, we'll go with that because because again, Willem Dafoe was not known at this point in time, so you're not casting a, like a no, massive. I'm, go- I'm going. I'm going for my hot young people who who okay. are going to bring the teens in. Okay, and then you, when you look back later on, you're going to say, "Wow, they really nailed it." Okay, all right, Jacob Elordi for raven and then next we'll go we'll go in order of how they're listed on wikipedia right now mccoy all right mccoy you need like a you need like a girl that's gonna be your 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 muscle yeah what about uh, uh alana heim we do alana heim oh yeah alana heim it is heim right it's not Heim. Yes, it's, it, okay. it is heim yeah Their last tour was called the one more heim tour yeah so, so alana that, helps heim. You, that helps you remember how to pronounce thank it. you yeah, I um, think Alana, Alana Heim, I think, could be an interesting McCoy. I like that. Leo okay. Young. Okay, Alana Heim. All right. Okay, next we have Billy Fish. Billy Fish. Billy Fish. He's a little bit older. He, yeah. he thinks thinks he's a hot shot. You know what? This is uh, you know, I, this just came to mind. This is also going to be uh, Licorice Pizza. <laughs> but cooper uh, cooper cooper hoffman no not 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 cooper hoffman uh i'm a big skylar jasando guy i feel like i just popped him up for something recently oh yeah yeah righteous gemstone guy Mm -hmm. okay okay i like that i like that he is he is fun and and licorice pizza he is fantastic in book smart (laughs) i just rewatched book smart recently and he is so funny in that all right okay you got him for uh speaking of book smart Billy Lord for um for McCoy. McCoy, that would be good. She would be good for that. Okay. Mm, who do you want? Billy Lord or Alana Heim? I'm gonna go Billy Lord for McCoy and then Skyler okay. Sando. Okay, gotcha. Okay. All right, next is Ellen Aim. There's one name and one name only. This is Olivia Rodrigo's I knew uh, role I to knew, lose. I knew you were gonna say it. I knew you were gonna say the question is, can she sing like meatloaf style music? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay. She does. I she mean, does. she has I mean, a she musical punk. theater, like, like, yeah. pop punk musical theater with high school musical, uh, the series or whatever it's called. High school musical, the musical series. Okay. I figured you were going to go Olivia Rodrigo. That's fine. Yeah. I think, I think this is, yeah, I think this is hers. I think she's got it locked up okay i mean you can really you could really you know bring the drama into it and say like oh maybe we'd let sabrina carpenter try out as well but you know that's that's neither here nor there you're gonna make her eg daily is what's gonna be and now that'll 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 be a lot of drama on set on set Uh, drama yeah yeah all right the big important one thomas oh i just uh, this this one i had down before skylar jasando or Billy Lord, so now I'm just casting a bunch of book smart people, but I had Mason Gooding <laughs> down for my for my Tom. Ooh. He would be good. I like I like Mason a lot. I think he's got a lot of charisma. I and, think so too. Um, I just I just rewatched him in Scream. He's great in the Scream mm-hmm. movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, side thing on 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 um for McCoy, even his sister in in Scream, who is Yeah, love her. She's she's in leftovers. Oh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, who's also mm-hmm. in in uh, uh, Yellow Jackets. Yeah, she'd also be a good McCoy. But we'll go with Billy Lord. We'll keep, we'll keep with that. We'll, choices. So Mason Gooding for Tom Cody. Next, does this film fit with any other genres besides the neon noir 
genre yeah i mean it's a it's a it's kind of a rock musical i mean it's a jukebox musical you know you don't really have anybody like yeah pausing to sing their feelings out but um no. but it's definitely got several musical breaks throughout mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's kind of dystopian yep uh not as much as as blade runner but it it's, it's other world it's yeah it's other there, yeah. it's otherworldly is the thing it's like sci- is it, is it sci-fi is it fantasy like that back half is almost a road trip in a weird way them going through all different cities but i wouldn't say it's a road trip movie yeah and i think um, it definitely leans a little bit more into kind of the gunslinger vibes than uh you know yeah. we, we talked last week about how blade runner does kind of have some it's mostly a detective noir but it has some like kind of gunslinger uh themes to it as well but this one is, for sure is is this guy rode into town he's gonna do do one job and then ride back out yeah yeah that's one thing I'm, I'm i'm intrigued to see what the rest of the month holds because that's this is the second time in second episode in a row we've mentioned westerns with this noir or neon noir genre and so that's a i wasn't expecting that coming in of how closely tied they kind of are mm-hmm. but we'll discuss that more and then how does this film fit with the neon noir genre a lot of neon a lot of neon um you know it's it's and this one's pretty interesting too because it wears that kind of 1950s influence on its sleeve at, yep. as well so like neon noir is this kind of 80s meets 40s and, and a little bit of the 50s mm-hmm. storytelling filmmaking style so this one literally is you know in, in in every inch of it is the meeting of those two eras yeah um so so this one is a little bit easier to kind of identify because it is that like oh we're taking neon but then we've also got these motorcycles and we got these guys in black yeah. leather and and they're they're hanging out in the shadows and 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 so it, it it's definitely very easy to pinpoint that kind of meeting of 80s style 80s music 80s kind of filmmaking that that mtv editing but then you're lighting it like it's a neon noir you're dre- or like it's a like an like it's a classic noir you're you're dressing everybody in these these kind of 50s outfits so yeah it's it's probably a little bit more surface level than some of the other neon noir stuff is you know you've got it's it it is 80s it is 50s and then it's talking about gangs and crime and and yeah. and all this stuff that is cl- kind of classics of the and noir a, genre and also post war to also bring that in like yeah. he's 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 ex he's ex or he's a veteran mccoy's a veteran they're all coming back from war and this is what their life is like and there's not really a place for them anymore True. that's the very cynical noir view of of what was happening after world war ii mm-hmm. so there is all that but yeah i think stylistically it's up there as one of the most neon noir movies you would say because of just what it does um in terms of story and then visually but yeah i think i think it's up there it's it's i don't know if it's the strongest in terms of as a as a movie as we've kind of talked about it's a flawed film mm-hmm. but it's an interesting watch and i think in the right circumstances is an entertaining watch so yeah uh but that's this week and i'll probably go rewatch the opening or ending right after <laughs> we get done recording with this um but yeah next week we're talking about william friedkins to to live and die in la also i just realized as i said this also Willem Dafoe. hey there you go so two Dafoe movies in in this uh in this series so yeah that's next week also again make sure you subscribe to our patreon i said we had the richard gear episode coming out i think we're having one more kind of traditional noir 
coming out uh, at the end of the end of the month. Hopefully the plans do Maltese Falcon. So stay tuned for that. Again, subscribe to us on Patreon. There's a one dollar uh tier, there's a five dollar tier and a ten dollar tier. Whatever you can do is helpful. Um that helps us co- to continue making this show in this current format and it just kind of helps support us when we're trying to, I guess, grow grow this podcast. So please do that. But that's all we have in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, your favorite movie you watched this month for the neon noir genre, whatever you want to. Um, and if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do that. Uh, you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, my challenge to you is to write us a review like you were in the movie Streets of Fire, and I will read it out <laughs> in my best uh, Tom Cody impression on the next or, episode. Or Rick Moranis impression. <laughs> you really like it, McCoy. Uh, I would love to hear that, so please, someone do that. Someone do that so we can hear Thomas read in an in 80s noir whatever you want to say accent um and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram letterboxd and tiktok thomas as always thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening we have to listen to more episodes soon bye